Our sermon passage comes from Philippians chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold, to, hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Merciful Father in heaven, I pray that you would feed us, your people, this morning through your word, which leads to your table. Work in us a miracle, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, worshiping in a building like this you know, on the West Coast, this kind of building is an old building. You know, in Yakima, there's only a handful of buildings that are older than this one. Then you go on the East Coast, you know, and they're several hundred years old are their buildings. And then you go and you travel to, you know, a place like uh, England, and they're like, hold my tea. You know, and they got these thousand-year-old buildings that they're still worshiping in. 
and it kind of gives you a different perspective. I've gotten to visit one of the oldest, I think the oldest still in use church, churches in England, and you walk through it, and it's amazing. It's still the same stone that was crafted from, from the year 500, still being used, still holding strong. And then there's this thing that we just know, right, that solid things last. Solid things have solid foundations. You know, Jesus says this in his famous parable about right, building a house on the sand versus building a house on the rock. And whoever hears and listens to his word builds a firm foundation, a forever foundation. And from it, you're able to actually stand firm, to endure, to last. This is the thing that Paul is pointing us towards this morning, speaking about how the church also needs to stand firm. Stand firm in, in what? In the Lord, it says, in Christ. It is the only thing that will endure. It's the only thing that will be able to stand the test of time. It's the only foundation that can carry the weight of eternity on it. And if we attempt to build our lives, to ground ourselves on anything else, even good things, and usually for us, it's the good things that are the distractions, yeah, or even our, our, our own religiousness or, or piety, even these things, it will actually lead to our destruction. And this is a great challenge for us because I think we can be so easily tempted to put our hope in the things that we can see and touch and feel and the things that we do. And what makes them sneaky is that they're good and necessary things like coming and worshiping with God's people on Sunday, reading your Bible and praying in the morning, tithing, but they can't handle the weight of your faith. They build your faith, right? They're the fruits of faith, but they're not the object of your faith, and they're not meant to take that place. And when you place these things that you do in any other core identity other than Christ at the foot of the foundation of who you are, you will crumble. You will falter. And this is Paul's call to the Philippian church. His call to us this morning is to stand Firm, when he says, therefore, he's essentially saying, because of these things that I'm saying, stand firm in the Lord. He has made you his own. You are made righteous in him. You are already made firm and strong in him. And if we already belong to Christ, he's saying, there is nothing to fear. So stand firm in him. You are already the beloved of the Lord. Don't you see what you have in Christ, he is saying. Why would you try to stand firm or root yourself or ground yourself in anything other than him? He is the only thing that can bear this weight, the only thing that will lead us to life everlasting. So the question is, how does he propose that we do this? How do we go about standing firm in Christ? I think there's three answers we're going to find this morning in this text. And the first is this. How do we stand firm in Christ? The first way is we put our confidence in Christ. We put our confidence in Christ. The beginning of standing firm begins with putting our confidence in him. We begin to see this in verse 2 and 3. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, culturally, one of the questions that Paul is addressing is what makes someone part of the people of God? Right? In the Old Testament, they had this outward mark of circumcision. And there was this group of people in the church called the Judaizers who wanted to circumcise the Gentiles and said that in order to be a part of God's people, you had to believe in Jesus, yeah, but you also still had to follow all these Old Testament laws. You had to be 
circumcised. And Paul says here, no. He, he calls them evildoers, actually, for this, for adding to the gospel of Christ. He calls them evildoers to suggest that you can do something to gain righteousness and status with God. If you have faith in Christ, if you worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ, which is beautiful Trinitarian language here, you are the true circumcision. Faith in Christ is actually the mark of God's people. You know, even in the Old Testament, this was actually true. God's desire was not just that they were circumcised in the flesh, but actually that they were circumcised in their hearts. Deuteronomy 30 speaks to this in saying that God's desire was for them to be circumcised in their hearts, for them to actually have a, a spiritual transformation, not just a physical transformation. So really, this is what God has actually always required of his people, because apart from the inner transformation of faith, he calls it just mutilization. Uh, mutilization. Apart from the inner working of faith, it's vain, which maybe makes us think of our own practice of baptism. You know, we place a high importance on the New Testament sign, covenant sign of baptism, which we would say replaces the Old Testament sign of circumcision, this physical outward marking. But our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we hold to, makes it clear that baptism actually isn't the thing that justifies you before God. It's a sign of many beautiful things. But we have to take our baptism to heart as well, which is the working out our faith in fear and trembling, which we touched on last week. And a bigger thing happening here is that Paul is saying that just being a member of Israel doesn't make you a part of God's people. The church is God's people. And now you, yes, you, even the Jewish people here, you need to be brought into the church to be in Christ, to be part of his bride, and that is the church. And this is how he goes about saving the world. And he actually doubles down on this whole idea by showing how good of a Jew he was. And, and although he was the, the best Jew that there was, it still wasn't enough for him to be considered part of the people of God apart from faith. He picks up in verse, uh, end of verse 3, but put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He is the best of the best, he is saying. He began for circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Right? If being a good Jew could save you, nobody would be more saved than Paul. He was super saved. If outer things can save us, if the things that we do can save us, Paul is at the top of the heap circumcised on the eighth day. He knows Hebrew. He is zealous. He's without fault according to the law. He was righteous. But none of these things could make him circumcised in the heart. None of these things actually could save him because they can't. They were never meant to. They were good things like reading scripture to our children and praying with them, things that God uses to bring people to salvation, but just doing these things alone doesn't save you. Memorizing the entire, entirety of scripture will not save you. Being good doesn't make you righteous because mere goodness is never enough. You need a righteousness that is not your own. This is a problem that humans cannot solve and this is what he leads us to in verse 7. He's leading us into this desperation. He says this in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, which was a lot, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
So we have to realize is these gains that Paul is taking, talking about, that he's considering nothing, are not small losses. These are the gains that every little Jewish boy would have aspired to. Like a little boy aspiring to be in the big leagues one day, or a little girl wanting to ride a horse in the Olympics. He's worked his whole life to achieve these things. And he has actually done it. He has achieved everything that he could have dreamed he could achieve. And yet he calls them rubbish, dung, worthless. How could he say this? Was he just masochistic? Is he just think the physical stuff is bad? No. He can say this because of what he gains. Knowing Christ. It's the pearl of great price. The gain found in Christ is incomparable to any gain we can find anywhere else. It can't be bought in a store. It can't be earned in your life. It's something that has come to the gift of faith. In verse 8, he continues, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. This gain, this thing that you find in Christ is the thing that costs you everything and nothing. It's the thing that costs you everything and nothing. Right? Paul lost everything. He has suffered. He is writing this from prison. He knows what he's talking about. All the prestige and accolades he has earned in life are all gone. But compared to his gain in Christ, it was a net gain. His loss is nothing. To gain the righteousness of Christ here can only be gained by faith. You gain it You can't gain it by the law, meaning you can't be good enough. You can't follow the rules perfect enough. If if you could, Paul would have made it, but all his attempts to do it on his own were futile. Only in giving up can you gain. This is the upside-down kingdom that is the gospel, that is the kingdom of God. The question rings for us, though. Are we willing to follow this path? Would you give up everything you had to gain Christ? Not just things. I think we often think about physical things in this, although it does include those things. But the core identity, whatever it is about you that you think makes you you, whether it's your experiences, your, your resumes, your, your children, your lack of children, our families, our cultures, everything that we think makes us us, will we give up all those things for the sake of knowing Christ? This, what we're talking about, is actually only possible if you have a profound confidence in Christ. That he is who he says he is. That he actually is better. That, it, that it, you are getting a net gain and going to him. And this is the starting point to what it could look like to stand firm in Christ. You can't stand firm in him if you are not confident in him. If you aren't willing to give up all things that you think make you who you are. But even as this stripping away can hurt. Even as I identified in Christ and his sufferings hurts, identifying with the suffering of Christ always leads us to the resurrection of Christ. Because resurrection follows death is what we see at the end here, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul understanding the, the sufferings, becoming like him in his death, will allow him to understand even more richly the power of the resurrection. 
that only the Christ can redeem us, his people. This is confidence. This is what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. Standing firm in the world is to double down on our credentials, but to stand firm in Christ is to double down on the credentials of Christ. So what does it mean to stand firm? It means to put our confidence in Christ. And apart from placing ourselves here, we are building our houses on sand. But he doesn't just paint this grand picture, but he actually tells us how we get there. How do we achieve this confidence? How do we grow in this confidence? And we find it's, it's, we gain confidence in Christ as we mature in Christ. The second thing we learn is that we need to mature in Christ. We, this level of confidence doesn't happen overnight, but it grows in us. It's a maturing process of our faith. And Paul picks this up here in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What an incredible statement. He's saying, this confidence that I'm talking about, I actually haven't gotten there yet either. Right? I'm still working on this. I'm not there yet. The full power of the resurrection, he hasn't obtained yet. He still struggles with sin. He still struggles putting confidence in his flesh. But he is pressing on to make it his own. And in verse 15, he calls this idea maturity. This is what maturity, Christian maturity looks like. It's striving to believe this, striving to make this confidence your own. This is not something that you can attain on this side of heaven, but it's, it's, a, it's a marathon. We're never going to get to the finish line. We're never going to perfectly be confident in Christ, but this is a process. And what's the basis for his striving? Why does he strive to make this his own? Because Christ Jesus, it says, has made me his own. This is incredible. Christ Jesus has already made us his own. Our work might not be finished, but the work of Christ is. Right? We are still running this race, but Christ's race is actually complete. He is sitting down. Jesus is finished, but we are not. You know, one of the worst things an athlete can think is that I'm already, I've already arrived. You know, the, the best athletes in the world, they're the ones that actually practice more than anybody else. That's what makes them so great. And this is true of faith, too. We're called to press on, to fight on, to grow, to look forward to what lies, lies beyond, be, uh, in front of us, not, not dwelling on our shortcomings. Also, you see this in sports, and especially in a sport like baseball, where like hitting 300 is, you know, Hall of Fame level stuff. That's three out of 10, right? It means if you're just thinking about the seven times you missed hitting a ball, you're not going to be very good. You've got to forget that, and you, and you move forward. This is what we're called to do, to press on, to fight, to grow. How can we do this? Because Christ has already made us his own. You're already secure in him now. Now act like it. He has already taken care of your past. He has taken care of your future. And so we're called to strive for what is ahead, not to gain Christ's approval, but because you already have it. This is probably one of the hardest truths to really wrestle with, the fact that God could not love you any more than he does right now in this moment. It's an incredible truth because we don't feel it, right? We feel the weight of our sin, the weight of our struggles, all the different things that, we're, that are weighing us down. But his love for you is perfect. It is complete. 
And because of that, it enables us to strive for Christ. The outcome of the race is already assured. The fix is in. Christ has already obtained this victory for you. And he's given it to you and I. And now we're pressing on to make it our own. Not to earn it, but because it's already earned on our behalf. You know, there tends to be kind of three different ways we can look at this kind of idea. The, the legalist, which is kind of what Paul was saying that he was before this, looks at the gospel and says, you know, I have to strive in order to, to gain the love of God. His love is only as great as my striving and my effort, which our efforts come and go, don't they? Or there's a person that reacts to this truth that we're already loved in God, so we call it the antinomian, which means against law. Another one that, that says, uh, well, because Jesus already loves me, if I already have this, then what's the point if I do anything? Who cares? I'll just do whatever I want now. But the gospel doesn't let us go there. It cuts through this and says, because Jesus already loves us, because he has made us his own, we ought to strive to make him our own. In this, we aren't striving forward in our own strength, but firmly rooted in Christ. So Christian maturity looks like growing in this, growing in believing the gospel more and more in our lives and a deeper and deeper understanding of the fact that you are completely secure in Christ, full stop, and that our good works actually flow out of this. We don't have to submit our resumes to each other. We don't have to puff ourselves up. But we are brothers and sisters in Christ because of Christ's resume. This is what we promote amongst each other. This is what we stand on. Anything else is fool's gold and will end in your destruction. And of course, this pursuit of ours, this holding fast, happens as we mature in this. Let us think like this. Let us live like this. And in the end here, the beautiful thing we find is that because we are in Christ... We will endure to the end when our faith will be sight. You know, standing firm, there's a fruit of that. So this is the last thing is enduring in Christ. Enduring in Christ, which he begins here in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This end, final section, he begins by talking about this idea of enduring, of standing firm to the end by talking about community which is kind of interesting. Right? He doesn't just say, imitate me, but look to those around us who are walking the right way and imitate them. For this to happen, it means you need to be in community with other believers. Standing firm endurance does not happen very well on our own. It doesn't happen through a screen or through podcasts either, but we need to be in actual fellowship with one another. Right? Following a celebrity pastor or authors that you don't know and who don't know you will not actually help you endure. But we need each other in this room. And it's not just you imitating me. There's plenty of things you probably shouldn't imitate me on. It's me imitating you and us imitating Christ to each other. We need each other in this room. And we endure in Christ as we endure in each other. And this is how we prevent what he mentions here in verse 18. For many, which means some of the people that have been a part of our community of whom I have often told you, now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. You say, many have not done what I'm telling you. Many have not imitated me and imitated each other. Many have gone off on their own. They walk as enemies of God because their God is their belly. 
which is like saying their God is their fleshly desires. Instead of submitting to Christ, right, to the way of the cross, they have submitted themselves to themselves, right? They have no control over themselves, just like I have little control over myself when it comes to ice cream. So delicious. He's saying these people here, man, you guys got to laugh one of my jokes one of these days, but it's okay. I got to tell better jokes, I suppose. Uh, But he's saying these people have no control over themselves, and it leads to their destruction, which we understand, right? If someone has no control over uh, an eating habit, you're going to kill yourself eventually, right? Uh, We understand this concept. And he goes on to say in verse 20, but not so with you. He says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And your citizenship is in heaven. It's already there, which is kind of incredible because it's this future thing that hasn't happened, but yet it has happened and it is done. It is finished. So live like it. Live like your primary citizenship is in heaven and not on this earth. Stand firm in it. And he goes on in verse 21 to say about Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, from this place, we await a Savior in Christ who will bring the transformation that he has promised and that he has already purchased by his blood. He's saying that the same power that enables him to rule, to create, to do all the things he has done, he's going to use to transform you as well, to recreate. Christ's power works. That's why we can endure and wait for it. That's why we can stand firm in it, because it will take us to the end. Because you belong to him already. Your righteousness is not your own. Your faith is not your own, but Christ has given it to you. Now go live in light of it. Press on to make it the gift of faith your own. Press on towards the prize of life, of everlasting. And for us, this applies to every part of our lives. Every part of our life, we act out of whatever we stand firm in or try to stand firm in. And we all have different things that are going to trigger and expose the the false places we try to put our feet, to put our identities in, where we attempt to stand firm in things other than Christ. A lot of times it has to do with our resumes. Do you know what I've done? Do you know the things that I've done of what I've accomplished in my life, right? It's easier for us to do this with families, right? Wrapping our lives around our children and our, our spouses, making them our foundations. Or we can do it with our jobs, making it impossible for us to put down our work because our work saves us or not knowing who we are apart from our our work. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. We could probably sit here all day, and this is probably worthwhile reflection for you as you go into your day, talking to your spouse, talking to your families, talking to your housemates. What do I put my identity in? And usually the trigger is, what offends you in life? But when we get exposed, and when these things make us upset, a light bulb should go off in our hearts and say, what am I doing? Why is this making me so upset? Why am I so offended by this? What does it say about my foundation? Paul counts everything as a loss compared to knowing Christ. Everything in the Greek here means everything. So where do you struggle to say the same thing? May we be a people who mature like Paul tells us to mature who grow in our ability to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who grow in our ability to count 
Everything is a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. May we see knowing Jesus as such a gain that we will do whatever it takes to get it. Pray with me. Merciful and gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the good news of the gospel, for the profound worth it is to know you. I pray that you would help us to know you more and more, and for any way that distracts us from knowing you, you would help us to put those things to death, to strive forward, to make it our own, not because it's ours, but because you have given it to us. And we take it so seriously and so deeply that we will do whatever it takes to not lose it, even though we're already secure in you. Help us to believe these things. Help us to know these things. Help us to encourage each other in these things. The power of Christ working in us, we pray. Amen.